Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll have the real pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Andre Gillespie, who is the author of Race and the Obama Administration, Substance, Symbols, and Hope. The book is published by Manchester University Press, and I have the pleasure to welcome Andre back. Andre, how are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Uh, I'm great. We were just sort of briefly talking about The fact that you were part of the very early days of this podcast, you were gracious enough uh, back then to share your your time about your earlier book, and now we have the chance to have you back. Um, So that's great, and thank you for being kind of like taking the risk at that point in 2012 to come on, and and, uh, we're still going, and you are as well. Maybe you could just um, very briefly sort of introduce, uh, reintroduce yourself, um, uh, where are you now, um, and uh, what have you been doing since you you came back on? Then we'll talk about the book. So I'm a political scientist at Emory University. Um, I study African-American politics, and I tend to write books about politicians who try to use racially transcendent tactics and messages to get elected. I'm interested in how um, voters, particularly black voters, respond to them. And I'm interested in what they do once they actually get elected to office. Um, There's a lot of normative concern about trying to be racially transcendent to win offices in the uh, wake of there being racial discrimination and inequality in the United States. Um, and in African-American politics, we're really concerned about um, whether or not African-American politicians are actually best positioned to advocate on behalf of African-American interests. So my first book was about uh, Cory Booker. Um, and I looked at his uh, time as mayor of the city of Newark to look at how black voters responded to his racially transcendent campaign tactics, and then how he performed during his first term as mayor of Newark. Um, And for the second book, which I'm glad to come back uh, to be able to talk about on this podcast, I focus on President Obama. Um, And so if I had to come up with another subtitle for my book, uh, I would probably be what Obama did for black people. Yeah, yeah. The the book um, is is so interesting and, and so timely as we get a little more distance from the Obama administration or able to uh, as as political scientists make better sense of the entirety of the of the eight years of the the entirety of that administration, you write at this sort of the start of the book that that others have um, have also weighed in on this, and these are some considerable scholars of considerable uh, reputation, and th- and that your work um, speaks to what they they have done, and and also uh, contrasts in some ways. I wonder if you could sort of. Um, you know, sort of briefly summarize sort of where the early takes were on the Obama legacy uh, and some of the who were some of the, the most prominent authors of those takes. What, what did they make? And, and how does that sort of 
uh, reflect your approach in, in coming to this work? Well, if I had to identify the sort of strains of the Obama literature, it would be three strains and maybe three different time periods. So the first strain would be the types of books that focused on how Obama got elected. And the questions there are thinking about what role did race play in his election? Um, so thinking about work by Don Kinder and Alison Dale Ritter, uh, if I am thinking about work by uh, Michael Tesler and David Sears, they're looking at how Obama got elected and what's the role of uh, racial resentment um, in predicting support for or opposition to President Obama. Um, and a lot of those books came out pretty early in 2009 and 2010 because they were focused on electoral politics. Then there were the um, uh, uh, edited volumes that also came out pretty quickly in the Obama administration, and many of them were kind of foreshadowing what people thought they were going to see in the Obama administration. So there were a couple of, of, of big ones. There's Obama year one, for instance. Um, there was uh, Thomas Crotty's edited volume. I think it's the Obama presidency. Um, and then there are the books that came out about halfway through President Obama's term in office um, and, and toward the end as well. And so a lot of them are focusing on rhetoric um, and focusing on whether or not uh, blacks were getting the bang for their buck, if, if you will, from having had Obama served as president. So the first books that are coming out in, in, in 2011, um, around 2012, would be um, Fred Harris's The Price of the Ticket, uh, Michael Dawson's Not in Our Lifetimes, um, and then more recently thinking about the books that focus on rhetoric. So Michael Eric Dyson's book, uh, Melanie Price's book, uh, The Race Factor, uh, Daniel Gillian's book, which actually takes a more comprehensive view of, of the entire American presidency and looks at rhetoric, um, you know, going all the way back, looking at the public papers of the president. So, you know, in many ways, my decision to write this book, um, and it really did take me about seven years to write the book, um, was in part a response to the stuff that came out immediately after uh, President Obama was elected, um, and especially in some of the edited volumes, a relative dearth of focus on race and how race was important. So we had the scholars in political psychology who were very interested in questions of how racial resentment and animus impacted the Obama presidency. Um, but it, when you started to shift to thinking about, well, the what now, so what aspect of it, there were people who were talking about all aspects of the Obama administration but weren't always talking about race. Um, and so I knew I wanted to contribute to that conversation. And then as I saw the scholarship emerging um, that was critiquing uh, President Obama, um, one of the things that you know sort of struck me about it was that there was a lot of focus on rhetoric um, and that perhaps I could make a contribution to this literature uh, by thinking about not just rhetoric, but also thinking about what we can gather in terms of policy initiatives. Um, and so, you know, there's still more work to do. And so I expect that there are going to be many, many, many more books about the Obama administration, maybe even some that I write. Um, but I wanted to take a first stab at actually looking at things that the Obama administration did um, and how they were talking about what they did and whether or not that we can use that as a, a signal about what the Obama administration's priorities were with respect to race. Yeah, the the sort of start of the book, you you say that you um, you break up some of your work into four steps use a variety of methods to, to come to this, this other aspect of the Obama years, the Obama administration. One of those uh, that you describe uh, are the substantive uh, policy 
aspects of the Obama administration, what what actually the the uh, the, the, the White House did on on these issues. How do you evaluate this part of the Obama legacy? What were the uh, the the policy decisions, uh, successful and not successful, uh, that were made that relate to uh, race? Well, I mean, and I'll start off by saying I only scratched the surface. So there is plenty more to write about this. Um, and, you know, I expect that I and others will kind of continue to come back to this. I decided that I'm going to look at four uh, cabinet level departments to look at their press releases and to see how they're talking about race, how they're framing issues. So I'm, I'm looking one, are they talking about race broadly? Are they talking about African Americans specifically? Um, and then looking at certain types of actions. So I look at the Department of Labor, the Department of Education, the Department of Health and Human Services, and I look at the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division to see what they're talking about. So, you know, this is going to vary across departments because they have different types of purview. So, for instance, the thing that I'm most interested in in Health and Human Services is how they're talking about healthcare and, in particular, how it looks for uh, the healthcare rollout. And I compare the Obama administration to the Clinton administration during that same time period. So, as uh, we were talking in the two-year period that we're talking about Obamacare in the Obama administration, and then the roughly two-year period that we're talking about Hillary Care um, and the healthcare initiative that President Clinton put her in charge of. And I want to see to the extent the extent to which people are talking about race and whether or not these issues are being framed as a racialized issue. Um, you know, we know um, now that if we look at health insurance um, and enrollment rates, that we see the number of people who are uninsured declines across all racial groups. Um, and that's going to be particularly important for Black and, 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 and Latino Americans. But the gap in terms of rates of uninsured actually doesn't change that much. So it's a very similar thing that we talk about when we talk about lower unemployment rates. And we know that pretty much over time, African-American unemployment is typically about twice uh, the rate of white unemployment. So even in good times like the times that we're in now economically where we have relatively low unemployment, yeah, unemployment goes down for African-Americans, but uh, the gap has barely narrowed um, over time. And so there's still an important thing to a question to ask about whether or not we're actually reducing inequality, even if more people are uninsured or, you know, have insurance or even if more people, um, you know, have jobs at this point. So I try to get at that. But, you know, so when I'm looking at the Justice Department, I um, am looking at uh, what types of discrimination are they addressing? So in their press releases, you know, are they dealing with hate crimes? Can I detect the race of the person based on the conversation in the press release? Um, are they dealing with voting rights? Are they dealing with human trafficking? What kinds of issues are, are being brought up? And, and can we and, and, and can I sort of code those as being racialized or not racialized? Can I code this as being something that would target African-Americans um, or not? In uh, the Department of Labor, I'm looking at a particular branch of the Department of Labor where I'm looking at uh, employment discrimination, where I'm looking at the types of industries that are uh, being monitored and actually being sanctioned uh, for illegal behavior. Um, and we can sort of look and see uh, you know, whether or not it's industries uh, that, you know, minorities are disproportionately represented in who is being discriminated against in terms of deployment, employment discrimination cases and, and, and the like. Um, and in the Department of Education, 
I'm looking at their their press releases and they're talking about all kinds of initiatives. So whether it's women in STEM issues or my brother's keeper, because my brother's keeper actually uh, was assigned to the Department of Education. How much are they talking about and engaging race? Um, and so there are a number of things that I can see um, in some instances, like in HHS and in the Department of Labor, I can do some comparisons. It's, it's you know, not a perfect comparison, but I can do some comparisons across administrations. Um, and then in places like the Department of Justice, I can actually see how discussion of racial issues change over time, if at all. So, you know, one of the interesting findings that I see, um, you know, in my data in the Department of Justice data is that there is a spike in discussions of, of, of voting rights issues, usually right before um, elections. And also there is a, a spike in discussions of voting rights cases in, in 2012 in particular that seems to be related to preclearance. And so the Justice Department is announcing that it's waiving preclearance from um, voting rights oversight uh, in localities in mostly the South that were covered by the Voting Rights Act that had not had a history of um, voting rights complaints uh, for a decade or more. Um, and this was actually really important because it was just interesting to see this cluster of press releases about these about these counties across the United States who, uh, you know, were being told by the Justice Department that they no longer had to pre-clear changes to their electoral systems with the Justice Department. Um, and what that looks like it's evidence of is that the Justice Department was very quietly trying to relax pre-clearance um, restrictions uh, because they anticipated that Shelby County versus Holder was going to happen and they wanted to demonstrate that they had some executive nimbleness in terms of not uh, providing an undue burden to certain localities in terms of making them or requiring them to, you know, submit their, their changes to their electoral systems to the Voting Rights Act. So that's evidence of activity. Um, I think one can disagree with uh, whether or not that was strategically the smart thing to do. In hindsight, it clearly didn't work. Uh, the Supreme Court, you know, you know, ended up, uh, you know, uh, invalidating the criteria that we use to determine who's eligible for preclearance in Shelby County versus Holder. But you can see that they are acting and at least attempting to anticipate certain changes that they might get from the court because the court had already presaged uh, that they might actually invalidate parts of the Voting Rights Act in a 2009 Supreme Court case. So that was certainly really interesting to, to see in the data. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you do um, in, in the book is you use this uh, metaphor of the paddling duck. And you use the metaphor to, to try to understand the, the perception uh, of what the Obama White House was doing from the, the reality, uh, from, from the, the sort of the apparent lack of effort to maybe the, the deep down hidden hard work. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that, you know, why, why this metaphor might be useful to think about uh, what uh, President Obama was doing. And, and how you use executive orders to sort of demonstrate the, the difference between perception and reality. Well, um, so I use the notion of the paddling duck because I think many of us have heard that metaphor that, you know, ducks look cool and calm as they're gliding along the surface of the water. But honestly, beneath the surface, they're paddling furiously. Um, and so I think when people have critiqued the Obama administration for having been more symbol than substance and for not doing enough to address African-American interests, what I want to sort of push the reader to consider is the ways in which the Obama administration may have been acting um, 
in the interests of African-Americans, but doing it quietly and behind the scenes and not necessarily providing a lot of fanfare to it. Um, This is also really important because uh, scholars and those who critique deracialization have also been, you know, really critical of the idea that President Obama may have been engaging in what Fred Harris calls wink and nod politics. Um, And so that there is this idea that black candidates run for office and they intentionally don't talk about race while running for office or they try as much as possible not to avoid talking about um, race uh, so that they can put a multiracial electoral coalition together. Uh, But that black voters who are still going to make up the base of their support know instinctively that uh, because this candidate is African-American, they are going to like do some stuff when they actually get in office. So it's kind of this unspoken pact between black candidates and black voters that I may not talk about race during the campaign, but trust me, I'll, I've got your back once I actually get into office. And that notion of the wink and nod has always been called into question um, by, um, by scholars who raise the normative concern about what happens when there are conflicts between blacks and whites when you've got to take a side. What do you do um, in those situations? And we've seen instances in sort of the history of African-American office holding where they've been put in really impossible situations in terms of disputes. So David Dinkins kind of comes to mind um, in terms of uh, some of the disputes that he had to to deal with in terms of the Red Apple boycott or the Crown Heights um, um, unrest. Um so it's so so it becomes a question of, of of whether or not he's doing enough beneath the surface. And so when I look at executive orders, um, and the evidence there is, is 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 small, but there are some places where we do see the Obama administration attending more to, uh, to 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 racial issues than Bill Clinton or George W. Bush does. Or when we're looking at activities in the cabinet level agencies, I do find some evidence that there is some some paddling beneath the surface that we were not always aware of or looking at, you know, in the middle of the Obama administration. Now, looking at um, sort of the side of policy is just is just one way uh, to think about this. You also think and, and talk and analyze a descriptive rep, uh, representation. And I was particularly interested in, in some of the uh, data collection and coding you did in chapter four, where mm-hmm. you looked at the, the placement of black presidential nominees. And you compared uh, Bill Clinton, George Bush, and and uh, President Obama. Uh, what did you find in terms of descriptive representation in this way? You look at all sorts of different appointments, from the the, the well known cabinet appointments to the the often unknown uh, advisory board nominations. A, a number of things uh, jumped out at me. What struck you about the descriptive representation legacy of the Obama administration, especially as it compares to his predecessors? Yeah, so there, there's a lot uh, going on there, and so I should probably just you know be really transparent about the um, uh, about the you know methodology here. We looked for as many names as we could find of appointees, and we didn't get them all. Um, we especially didn't get them all for the Clinton administration. And then we took as many names as we could, uh, as we could find. And then we looked up biographies just so that we can see, um, you know, uh, whether or not they talk about themselves in the context of their racial or ethnic identity and look for pictures. And we made judgment calls about who, uh, you know, would uh, largely be identified as white and who would be identified as non-white. 
And then I look at the types of offices for which uh, uh, these candidates were being nominated across time. And, and, and so I'm interested in sort of the cabinet level offices, people who would be appointed to ceremonial positions. So some of the advisory um, committees and boards, um, and then want to see if there is a difference in terms of, uh, you know, whether or not we see one more um, African-Americans um, and other minorities overall. Um, being appointed to um, serve in some capacity in the Obama administration. And then also whether or not we see um, we, we see sort of people being placed in more substantive areas. And so you know, one of the interesting things to think about was that President Obama did garner some criticism uh, for not being more diverse, say, than the Clinton administration was in terms of uh, cabinet level appointees. So, you know, overall, Bush and Clinton and Obama look roughly similar to one another um, in terms of the amount of diversity that's represented in those top, top level positions. So the cabinet level positions uh, and then and this is actually especially helpful for Obama when you add in the senior level advisors like Valerie Jarrett, for instance. Um, so when we look at cabinet and cabinet level appointees, uh, there you know, weren't, especially at the beginning of the Obama administration, um, a whole lot of African-American appointees. So Eric Holder was the one black cabinet level official who came in with the Obama administration. Over time, he has five African-Americans who serve. Um, and then if you add in some of the most senior um, uh, members of the presidential uh, of the president's staff, right, that's where you, you get the diversity. And so that looks different than the Clinton administration. Um, it even looks different from George W. Bush's um, administration. Overall, President Bush had four African-Americans serve in cabinet positions over the course of his presidency. Um, and so there was some critique of that um, about whether or not his cabinet was diverse, even though he um, was African-American. Um, so, you know, I start to look overall at where we see African-American representation. And overall, um, we do see um, a higher uh, proportion of his appointees, the ones that I could find, um, who would be classified as African-American. Um, we see higher numbers of Asian-American representation. Um, Obama has higher levels of Latino representation compared to Bill Clinton. In particular, they're about the same compared to George W. Bush. Uh, he has higher uh, rates of representation for Native Americans in his administration. Um, and then one of the things that's actually really interesting based on the uh, data that I have, and so acknowledging, again, they're maybe people whom I don't have their information for. Uh, he, in his, uh, over the course of his um, administration, um, did have, you know, especially compared to George W. Bush, uh, and even slightly more, so it's only a difference of about two percentage points, um, maybe had a slightly higher number of judicial nominations compared to Bill Clinton in the first two years of office. Um, and had a higher, uh, higher proportion of diplomatic nominations compared to Bill Clinton. Um, it's a little bit lower than George W. Bush in his first two years of office. Um, one, one of the things that you know, I do point out, and so you could use this as a, as a, as a sign of symbolic representation, is uh, there are a lot of African-Americans. So um, in the first two years, about a quarter of his nominees to advisory boards were African-American, and that's a higher proportion than I could find in the data for uh, Clinton and, and and Bush, even though I acknowledge the limitations uh, of, of, of my data there. Um, and actually, he nominated more people 
to uh, do work that could easily be classified as being of interest to African-Americans. So, for instance, nominating people to serve on advisory boards for historically black colleges and universities, uh, for instance, or anything that might actually be uh, uh, targeted towards trying to address racial inequality or reduce gaps. So some people could argue that some of those uh, positions were symbolic because they were just making recommendations to the administration. Um, but it's important to see that Blacks were actually being included in the administration in ways that uh, you know were different from the previous two administrations. Yeah, uh, the book, uh, the really interesting book, uh, is again titled... Race and the Obama Administration, Substance, Symbols, and Hope. Andra's book is published by Manchester University Press. Andra, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.